0: Industry Focus.
1: The podcast
0: that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day.
1: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
0: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials.
1: Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard!
0: Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, November 23rd. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On this week's Financial Show, we're digging into the recent S-1 filing for a firm to get a closer look at what makes this business tick and when it goes public, if it is a company that investors should have on their radar. We're also going to take a look at Berkshire Hathaway's most recent 13F filing to check out what team Buffett has been buying and selling recently. Joining me this week, it's bank analyst extraordinaire, John Maxfield. John, how's everything going?
1: Good. I think you need to set the expectations lower, Jason Moser. <laughs> Come on.
0: <man>. We <laughs> should we, be we've, real. T- we've spoken before. You've got a track record out there. People know. I can't. I can't pull the wool over their
1: eyes. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna put my wife on here. She's gonna tell you what the what, what the real what the reality is.
0: Well, my wife, I'm certain, could do the same thing. You know. But let's just let's 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 stay in our minds here, and we'll, we'll think the best of 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 us, and and you know we'll. we'll let our let our wives uh, you know think what they want to think we we don't have to bring that into this show <laughs> um john you know we were talking over the weekend and there is a we're seeing a lot of companies that are that are filing um to go public here in the, in the next you know few months and i mean it's been a lot of fun because that that's always something for us to dig into and uh, there's a business that just recently filed its s1 a company called affirm and we wanted to dig into the the S1 for affirm today and you know look under the hood here understand a little bit more about what this business does uh, how it makes its money what what type of you know competitive advantage it has if any uh, competitors in the space, you know, try to get a feel as, as if is as this is a, a company that investors really should um, have on their radar here because it does look like it's going to be something that's going to be going public here very soon, and it's playing in you know that fintech space, which offers a lot of interesting opportunities for sure. Um, you know, when I when I opened up this S one and, and started learning more about the business, I have to say I was really impressed. I mean, it, it is, I think. It is pursuing a market that is becoming more and more an attractive space, particularly for uh, your your millennial generation, your Gen Z generations, um, and, and we'll talk about that focus on on buy now pay later. Uh, but but let's talk first and foremost about what this business does. And you know its mission is very simple, and that is to deliver honest financial products that improve lives. But but let's dig into that a little bit. Talk a little bit about what a firm does.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, l- let me just start with this because you mentioned their mission statement. One of the things I think is interesting about a company, I think, you know, mission statements are actually really important. And I like their mission statement. The reason I like their mission statement is not is because it's not like we just want to be the best in whatever industry we are. But they actually kind of talk to an altruistic human desire. And I think that that is such an important thing to work backwards from. Um, so I just want to I want to put a pin in that since you mentioned it, Jason. But in terms of what a firm does um, as as a company and as a business, It's a payments and financing platform for digital and mobile-first commerce. Okay, so what does that mean? Okay, let's say you go to the Walmart website and you want to buy a new TV for Christmas. Well, when you add that to your cart and then you go to the checkout, you can have an option of clicking on a button that'll say Affirm. And then what that will do is that will allow you to finance that purchase. So if it's a $1,000 TV... You can set it up so you can set up payments for that. So it's basically a a company that is lending money to consumers to make purchases. Um, And so you have kind of the lending aspect of it and the payments aspect of it. So on a global perspective, that's kind of how I think about its business model.
0: Now, when you say, you know, lending money, allowing consumers to finance those purchases, and, and that really, that plays right into that buy now, pay later. We're seeing more and more companies offering those services. I mean, I, I think it's worth noting, and and uh, you know, it's important to consider here that, that a firm is not a bank, right? I mean, they're not the ones actually lending that money. They're partnering with banks to actually provide that dynamic of the service,
1: right? That's right. There's a bank, um, that sits behind it that's actually doing the underwriting. They, this is it, it, this is kind of like a lead generation business model for that bank kind of if you will. And the, and the name of that bank is Cross River Bank, which is which is a really interesting bank. Um, but for this purposes yeah, it's just the bank that sits behind a firm. So, you know, when you, you look at how they make money, I mean, it's, it, it
0: seems like they make money a couple of different ways from what I could see in the S1, and I mean, it, 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 clearly from merchants, I mean, you can understand the value proposition with the merchant side, um, you know, they earn a fee there when they help that merchant convert a sale. I thought it was interesting from the consumer side uh, in, in, that they earn interest, essentially, on on those loans. I mean, let's just call them what they are, right? When you finance a product, I mean, that's a loan. And even if you have a banking partner, I mean, a firm is playing a role in that value chain as well. I mean, what, it, it, it kind of feels like in today's environment, maybe there's not a whole heck of a lot of money to <laughs> be made on, on the lending side, but it is still a dynamic of the business model there. What, How do you feel about the way this company generates revenue? Um, do you feel like it opens them up for more avenues, more ways, more services to provide, or is, is it something that's going to be pretty cut and dry just you know, on the merchant side, on the consumer
1: side? Okay, so you're right, first of all, about this is not a great time for businesses that earn interest right? Because interest rates are so low. But there are some important exceptions. And one of the important exceptions is in the consumer finance space. Because these are unsecured loans to consumers, these generate a much higher interest rate than, say, a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, which I, I don't know what the rate on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage is right now, but it's probably like 2.8%. I mean, it's, for all intents and purposes. It, it, yeah. I nothing. mean, for
0: all intents and purposes. I mean, just use 3% as a round number. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy
1: right now, actually. <laughs> Exactly. But so the one area where you can generate more interest income, and this is true in any time period, but still today is in consumer finance, because the risk of default is just a lot higher. And not only is the risk of default a lot higher, because you could, in a sense, you can think about these as credit card loans, in, in a sense, they're, they're kind of a variation of that. Uh, but not only is the, the potential of loss higher, But what banks call the loss given default is higher. So typically, so if you default on your mortgage, the bank's just going to come and take your house. And because in a conventional mortgage, you got to put 20% down, the bank probably isn't going to, actually at the end of the day, isn't going to lose any money on it because they'll take that collateral. Well, there isn't any collateral in a loan like this. You're not going to like, Send somebody to go pick up a TV because because the cost of sending somebody to go pick up the TV is going to be higher than whatever the worth the value of the TV is at that point. So, <laughs> yeah. so that that's why they're able to earn more interest. So, all right, well let's let's dig a
0: little bit more into management here for a second because when we go back to the business and we talk about mission driven. I mean, oftentimes mission driven businesses um, involve founder leaders, right? Founders who have a specific idea, a specific vision of what they're really trying to accomplish. And, you know, it it seems like in this case, I mean, you have Mac, Max Levchin, who's the founder and, and the CEO of the business today. Talk a little bit about leadership here, about management. Where do you feel like, um, I mean, it is going to be a dual-class share uh, system here. I mean, it is going to be another one of those companies where we're basically, you know, investors who want to consider this business have to understand that they are more or less just kind of, Jumping, jumping in the car here with with Max and his team, and 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 uh, trusting that they're going to make the right decisions.
1: Yeah. So I'm probably not going to say it. Yeah, the the pronounce now last name right. Is it Levchin? Is that how it's you say Lev- it? It's left. Yeah. Well, I yeah I
0: might be mispronouncing it, and I'm sorry, Max, if that's the case. But yeah, I I, I was pronouncing it Levchin.
1: Yeah, that's what it looks like to me too. So so here he, this is an interesting story because. You know, if you look at, and I think First Republic Bank actually tracks founder led companies and how they perform relative to non founder led companies. And they have found that founder led companies perform better over time. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that like they're just all in on this thing, right? Not only do they t- tend to have like a lot of like financial skin in the game, but they are like wrapped up in this thing as human beings, right? Because it kind of reflects who they are. But here's what's interesting about this, Jason, as I, was, as I was preparing for this and kind of going through the S1, I was like, I got to ask Jason this, is that, so you have a founder-led company, but this in this instance, this uh, follows under that founder-led company, but Max, Max Levchin is kind of like a serial entrepreneur. The, what, the cool thing about Max, Max Levchin is that you know he was part of the PayPal mafia right? So he and Peter Thiel found a company and then that company kind of evolves and then it becomes, turns into PayPal, right? And PayPal, then they cash out, when PayPal was bought by eBay, um, all those guys made, made, made a ton of money, right? And so then he goes on and does, does a few other things afterwards. So what's awesome about that, right, from the investor's perspective is that this is not this guy's first rodeo, okay? Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. has been there and he has done that, right? Which is really Really beneficial for the investor because it means you're going to pay for fewer mistakes, right, on his side. Yeah, I mean, that's a really important point, point there you made in there in regard to the mistakes. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, and but the other the other side of it is that is this something that is is this something that he's passionate about that he's going to be doing 20 years down the road? You know, if you look at his record, probably not. Now, that isn't to say that this is not a good investment for investors because you know. His track record is pretty good, and so if it, you know if a firm eventually gets bought out by another company, maybe it gets bought out a huge multiple, there could be a huge return um, for the investors. Or if he hands it off to a CEO who's really capable, and that CEO then grows it as an independent entity, it could be super duper profitable as well from an investor perspective. But when you think about it, this is a founder-led company, you know. And I want you to tell me what you think. But I think of this as kind of like kind of a separate dis- as kind of its its own flavor of founder led company because of the serial nature of the entrepreneurship behind it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with you. I mean, I think you you really keyed
0: in on an angle that's important to remember is that when you have someone like you know Mr. Lechin who's let's you know say he's a serial entrepreneur, I mean there you, there is you do you pay you pay less for those mistakes, right? Those mistakes just. They learn so much along the way and they don't repeat a lot of those mistakes. And so, the further down the road you get, uh, a bit more of a compelling offering they bring to the table. And I think with a company like this, you know, I found a really interesting um, statistic in the S1, something that just kind of made me think. And it, you know, it made me wonder about this business being founded. Uh, but but it it was focused on ultimately, you know, Gen Z and and the millennial generations being, you know, being the the greatest proportion of our of our U.S. economy today, of our our U.S. consumer economy today. I mean, this really this is a business founded based on how those younger generations are spending their money. He's had a lot of time to think about this all along the way, given what he's done today.
1: Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, I mean. he understands this ecosystem, right? He understands like this transformation, this technological transformation. He understands this, these, I mean, a firm has really important tailwinds behind it. One, to your point, this generational shift, right? To the longer, younger generations and the younger generations tend to buy a spend a larger proportion of their money online as opposed to in a physical store. So you have that tailwind, right? And as that generation becomes a larger and larger portion, as these younger generations become a larger and larger portion of overarching society, that will go up. And then the other, and you had kind of alluded to this earlier, Jason, is this, this buy now, pay later tailwind that we're also seeing in the digital ecosystem, in the digital space becoming a larger, sig- larger share of overarching purchases um, out there. So it has these, these tailwinds that you just think you look at you know Levchin's background and you know being a part of PayPal and understanding how that whole dynamic works you just can't help but think that like he's he probably understands this at a very fundamental level and, and can kind of project forward better than most of us can
0: yeah and i mean let's let's talk about that that buy now pay later dynamic a little bit more you you had you had mentioned um you know sort of the the riskier nature of of transactions like these um you know there's no real collateral to speak of right there i mean you you're dealing with one-on-one consumer behavior um which which in a, in and of itself can be can be a little bit riskier but i mean that 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 speaks to something the company's very very focused on i mean it was built upon technology right it was built on this idea i mean speaking of of data points i found another one here in the in the s1 that i thought was really fascinating a, a survey conducted by the harris poll in 2020 Found that 64% of Americans would consider purchasing or applying for financial products through a technology company's platform instead of a traditional financial services provider. And then, if you talk about Americans aged between 18 and 34 years, that sentiment rises to 81%. And so you can see this shift sort of away from that old banking model towards this new partnership model where it's, it's, even if banks don't want to do it at this point, I don't know that they really have a choice. Banks almost have to partner up with some of these tech companies because these tech companies are being built on different fundamentals—mission-driven fundamentals, tech-driven fundamentals, consumer-centric fundamentals—that perhaps a lot of these you know older banks have left behind for, for for years and years. And now that's sort of you know that that's that's uh that that's really becoming a little bit more more of a you know consideration for consumers. But I mean, with a company that's built on tech like this, on data, on AI. There's a lot of potential for network effect there, right? The more people you getting in, get in there using it, the more merchants that want to use it. I mean, it, it feels like to me, while it may still very well be in the early stages, they could be building a meaningful competitive advantage. I mean, that doesn't seem out of, out of the uh, out out of the realm of possibility.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly, if you look at their S one. Um, the network effects is the first competitive advantage that they cite. And the way they think about it is they, they say like, look, like, you know, if you give consumers a better experience, you'll get more consumers, right? If you get more consumers, you'll have a stronger ecosystem. And the reason you will have a stronger ecosystem is because like merchant, merchants will be a part of that, right? And also because you'll have all that data. So if you have a stronger ecosystem, you'll get better merchant, you get more merchants, you get more merchants, you'll have additional products that they can offer. You have additional products. You can increase the gross merchandise volume that the overarching you know service provides. If you get that, then that can finance better. You know, not only finance but source um, better data insights, and then you can use those insights to improve the experience. And then you have this this flywheel effect. So, like certainly, they view network effects as a really important you know aspect of of the competitive advantage. Now, the one thing I would say and that here's what's interesting is that. Um, you know in 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 this digital world that we live in you know if you think about huge big big trends right big societal trends that we're seeing that we've seen over time one of them is is the power to make better decisions and better decisions are based on better data not only more data but more timely data and then uh the you know, systems behind those things that allow you to analyze that data. Now, this is one of those business models that benefits a lot from data. Um, And one of the reasons it benefits so much from data is because, you know, this is a business where you're lending money. When you lend money, risk management is so incredibly important, right? Because you go through a recession, loans like these are the ones that go bad fastest, right? Because you're not gonna lose your house, and not in, not only that, no one's going to come take the TV you bought, right? So like, yeah, it'll ding your credit score, but it isn't going to hurt your life, you know, in the immediate future, which is what happens in the in you know, that's how people start thinking in in those time periods. But what I found was what was really interesting is that in the banking industry, in the fintech industry, real, via ZV banking, one of the the pitches that all these companies are making is that look, because we have all this data, we can make better credit decisions. And so what you found in their S1 is they say, one of the selling points to a firm is that we approve 20% more customers than our competitive products. And that's, there's, that's a benefit and a detriment. It's a benefit to the merchants because then the merchants are just selling more things. But then on the other side of it, you have to say, well, what are, the other, what are these other companies, are the other companies missing something or the other company is just being more prudent. And you don't, we won't, you don't know this until you go through a cycle with one of these companies. That's, that's where the rubber meets the road. Um, but that was one of the things that I was thinking like, uh, you know, like, I've heard this thing over and over again in the FinTech community about using data to improve credit analysis. And while I understand that theoretically, um, that the proof is in the pudding on that one. And, and nobody is, to, since we're in Thanksgiving week and talking about food, that pudding <laughs> yeah. hasn't been made yet by anybody.
0: Yeah, I mean that is just it, right? You can you can talk the talk, but then you need to walk the walk. And you've seen, I mean, I've certainly seen businesses. I mean, what there's there a business years ago that uh, PayPal acquired an international remittance company, Zoom. Um, and and you know, part of their secret sauce, as David Gardner likes to say, is uh, you know their their risk assessment, right? They they had a a they had proprietary risk models that really helped them minimize losses on those on those uh, remittances. And um, you see Square with a big focus that that way as well. And I guess you know we start talking about risks with a business like this, and and and, and um, it leads me to you know the first obvious question. I feel like with something like a firm, and we're seeing this right now, with Square applying for a bank charter. I mean. It, it, what, what's the what's the the possibility that a firm at some point or another decides they want to try to become a bank? I mean, is that something that just because that's taking on a whole new level of not only risk but regulatory compliance and I mean commitments and 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 you know capital maintenance requirements that that will never go away. So I mean that that you become a bank, you take a little bit of that slick sort of high margin tech uh, model away, don't you?
1: Yes, you become a bank there's a lot to your point, the uh, expense that you incur because of the stringent regulatory environment is not insignificant by any stretch of the imagination. That being said, there is an expense of not being a bank. And that is that, right, to cut out the middleman, right? Right now, Cross River Bank is the quote unquote middleman. And so if you look at their business model, so you go and you buy a TV, a firm makes a loan to you. A firm takes that loan, and that loan just goes straight to Cross River Bank. But what a firm will do is it'll buy those loans back from Cross River, and there's a cost associated with that. So you take out that cost. So the question is, by taking out that cost, would it um, would that cost outweigh the cost of being a bank? I don't know that, right? I'm sure that is something that they would look uh, that they would dig into. Um, but the other thing that needs to be appreciated is that. These are the type of loans that banks have historically stayed away from, right? These are, you know, I don't want to call them like hard money loans, but these are like those types of loans, right? And and banks already kind of get a bad name for making money off of other people's money. Well, if you're going into those, those niches in the market where the interest rate is super high, um, well, that's 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 where kind of banks have historically gotten a a bad name from. So, you know, which is another interesting thing to think about, you think like, well, you know, would a firm wanna go down that regulatory path and be be a regulated bank, given the fact that they operate within this niche? Um, And the other thing you need to think about is like, well, would a firm be a potential acquisition target of a bank? Like, would a bank want that portfolio on its balance sheet? and I don't know the answer to that, but it, but it's certainly something to, con- to to consider.
0: Well, yeah, we we've certainly batted that question around more than once as to why uh, you know someone like a J.P. Morgan wouldn't have, have you know thought about acquiring something like a Square back in the day when it was far more affordable. But you know that's water under the bridge at this point, I guess. Um, you know, one thing I noticed, and and I would I would call this out is probably the risk that really the concern, I think, uh, you know, that that really stood out to me the most. They have one really big customer, don't they, John?
1: One really big customer. Yeah, I mean, Walmart, is that? (laughs) No, I'm sorry, a firm,
0: a firm. Yeah, I don't know if you saw, but uh, Peloton actually represents a lot of their total revenue. I was impressed to see this. Um, You know, it could be the sword that cuts both ways, I guess, because Peloton's obviously doing really well, and and I think they've got a lot of... um, I think they've got a lot of runway there at Peloton, but Peloton rep- represented approximately 28% of a firm's total revenue for the fiscal year ended June 30th, 2020, and uh, 30% of total revenue for the three months ended uh, September 30th, 2020. So, I just it's something worth keeping in mind anytime you. You know, you see these businesses, and they're new, and they're young, and they're just getting their feet underneath them. And and it's it's you know having a big client is something you want. You want that belief, right? You want a client that's willing to commit and say, "Listen, these this is our this is our partner. This this is the company that's making us uh you know making us making us work here." But but it, it's also something to keep in mind. They do make a lot of money uh, from Peloton, and any loss of of that revenue uh, partial or otherwise i mean that that would be something that, that that would that would be a significant hit at least in the near term i'm not saying that's a long term concern there but i mean we saw recently with um Another very popular uh, name in the Foolish Universe, not a financial holding, but uh, the company Fastly, the edge computing uh, content delivery network. Um, you know, Fastly lost uh, that that uh, TikTok revenue stream, which had become something like 13 or 14 percent overall. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that's fatal to the business, right? I'm not saying that, but but certainly the market reacted uh, negatively to it, and it's something that's going to play out in the near term, and as Fastly tries to. Um, you know, shore that up and and uh, find ways to replace that 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 revenue.
1: Yeah, you know, I I I missed that in the S one, and that you know, that's a that's a really significant fact. It's not it's not an, a, a fatal factor for an investor by any stretch of the imagination, but that is something that should be kept in mind. And and for this reason, in particular, given where we are at right now, and that's because this home exercise stuff is just killing it right now. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, mean, yeah. Like, yep. <laughs> I mean, so, and that that's not gonna be the case at all times. So not only do you have like the potential that you could lose that relationship, but maybe that relationship becomes less profitable. Again, not fatal. But really important variable to consider.
0: Yeah, yeah. And when these IPOs go public, there's usually a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, the valuations become a little bit detached from the fundamentals of the business. So just you know, something to keep in mind at least. Um, but knowing everything that we know, knowing what we've what we've what we've discussed today, um, I'd be interested to hear your take on this. I mean, is this the, is this the kind of business that you would be interested in as an investor, or is it is it maybe a little bit you know outside of your comfort zone?
1: Well, it's not outside of my comfort zone because it's 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 very much you know kind of what I look at, what I think about in terms of businesses. Would it be something that that I would invest in? Um, That's a really good question. Let me answer it in. in, Let me go off on a tangent and to answer that in part. (laughs) Okay. Okay, IPOs are killing it right now, right? IPO. So if you look at the Renaissance U.S. IPO index performance that year to date. Uh, the companies that got on public are up 88%. The S&P 500 is up 12%. So this is an amazing time to go public for the companies that are going public. Now, is it as good on the other side for the investors that are buying in? I mean, I you know, that remains to be seen. So, you know, and the reason the IPOs are doing so well, especially tech IPOs, is that when interest rates come down as far as they've come, you just can't make as much money in the bond market. And the bond market is this huge monster relative to the equities market. And so what you have these bond investors, you have these these wealth these asset managers, these wealth management um, folks who need to earn a certain yield on their investments. So what they'll do is they'll take a small chunk of their bond portfolios and then allocate it over to their equity portfolios. Well. Because the bond market is so much bigger, it's just a small sliver of that that's got to come over to equities to really drive this stuff up. And then we think within the world of equities, there are certain ones that are particularly, um, that are doing particularly well. And those are, and you mentioned this, fintech companies is one of that you know, one of that kind of subsectors of companies that are doing really well. And you think like, well, why are fintech companies doing well? Well, technology companies are doing well because in this environment, everything is remote. So everybody's buying stuff online. Everybody's doing stuff digitally, right? As opposed to in person. But fintech companies in particular, they have to benefit from this kind of trend in the financial space towards digital, like kind of this transformation towards digital financial transactions. And so these are huge tailwinds that are just shooting up equity valuations in that space. Um, Now that, so I would be reluctant just as a general rule to buy into that because valuations are so high as a general rule. But that doesn't mean but I have i I've missed more good investments than I've made, Jason. Okay. So I'm not saying that people should avoid it, but just the way I invest, that's probably not the direction I would go in for that simple reason.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I am I'm with you. I think this is one that I'm fascinated by the business. Um I'm not 100% sold on just the buy now, pay later opportunity. I think I'd be I'd be more encouraged if I saw them branching out in other directions. It's certainly one that I would I'd follow it, and I'd want to I'd want to know more about it, more and learn more about it. But but I've I've learned uh, through the years that for the most part, IPOs you want to let them go for a little while, let them let them prove themselves. And I think in this case, um, I I would I would view this no differently. And for investors. We we do not have at least a date set. There has been no date set for this IPO. It it sounds like it's going to be something that comes out here soon in December. Uh, It'll be trading under the ticker AFRM for affirm. So keep an eye out for that. And um, yeah, we'll certainly be be uh, following it along here on the show as as this story unfolds because it sounds like a really neat business and one that we want to learn more about. Um, John, before we wrap things up this week, uh, Team Buffett. Team Buffett out there in Omaha, they've been doing a little buying and a little selling. They filed their recent uh, 13F, and and that 13F, as as many folks know, that's the form that institutional money managers are required to file uh, 45 days after the end of each quarter, and that tells us what these money managers have been doing buying and selling wise uh, w- with the stocks that they own. And, you know, not a lot of, not a lot of surprises out there with what's um, with what what's been going on. It seemed like there maybe was a little bit of profit taking on some of that Apple position, but I'm wondering if any of those transactions to you on the buy side or the sell side uh, for Berkshire Hathaway this quarter uh, stood out to you.
1: Well, just in broad strokes, I mean, this was, your point about team Buffett as opposed to Buffett, I think is, Spot on. I think when when you look at what it's doing, this is not Warren Buffett sitting there making all these decisions, right? I think mean, you're right. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, you have he's got these two money managers that are kind of behind him. You have Todd and Ted. These guys are like, I think, making a lot of these decisions. You know, the, let me let me just kind of walk through the things that stuck out to me. They sold their Costco position.
0: That was the one that stood out to me more than anything, and it wasn't that they trimmed it; they sold the entire thing.
1: Sold the whole thing. And why? like, when you why do you about, think they did that? I don't know, but you think about like Costco is a Buffett company. You know. know what I mean? I mean, it's just simple, so profitable. I mean, just doing so well. I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer to why they sold. Uh, obviously, they don't tell me. <laughs> I, mean, but, um, I don't know, but I, I thought that was really interesting. What do you have? A, do you have a hypothesis on that? Um, the only thing I could
0: fathom was that, that you know, it. it it, it just a massive return on an investment that's done very well. Perhaps they felt like you know it had it had done what it could do in this newfangled sort of e-commerce Amazon world. And I mean, Costco is not known for its e-commerce prowess. Um, uh, you know, so yeah. I mean, going back to the team Buffett, I, I feel like there was, I feel like this decision certainly went beyond him. Um, I, I could see Charlie and Warren just saying, "Hey, we're very happy with it." So maybe maybe it went maybe it went beyond them.
1: Yeah, that I mean. I just, I'm just bewildered by that one. But the other, another big trend I saw in the 13F, and I'm sure you did too, is that they went in big on pharma stocks, on pharmaceutical companies. And not only just one. So you think, like, okay, well, were they betting on the company that is going to come up with the vaccine? Or was this more of a general investment thesis that pharmaceutical stocks is is going to be a good place to be over the years to come? Looks to me like it's more of the latter. They went in on Pfizer. They went on uh, Bristol Myers. They went on Merck. Um, So they went in on, I think, four different companies, bought relatively substantial stakes. Although for Berkshire, I mean, like, what's a few billion bucks each, right? (laughs) But, (laughs) um, but I mean, they're betting. They are betting heavily on on the pharmaceutical companies, and you know, whether that's because of this 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 COVID situation right now, um, or whether that's maybe because. You know, they see the changing demographics in the United States. You know, as the as baby boomer generation continues to age, maybe they see that as, as fertile a fertile field for investment thesis. I, I don't know, but it's certainly one of the larger things that um, that they did.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think there are probably a few things playing into that and um, I mean perhaps a little bit of the consolidation in the space maybe looking looking years down the road recognizing the role that those that those farmers play in our in our lives the roles they're going to continue to play how important they are and um ensuring that they're well <laughs> well, well capitalized uh and, and frankly I'd much rather see him uh you know allocating capital to those types of businesses as opposed to the to the oil and gas um Nothing against oil and gas. It just feels like, you know, the world is headed in a little bit of a different direction. That's gonna be kind of a long, slow bleed there. But yeah, just always interesting to see what they're doing with their money there. And and of course we talked earlier um in the year about his uh, position in Snowflake, which was clearly just strictly tech, obviously data, um, probably not something that that Mr. Buffett or, or Mr. Munger uh, w- was behind, but in a modest investment in the in the context of their portfolio. But just yeah, always good to look at that 13F and see what they're doing. Um, you know, we're not copying it by any means, but you know, it's always worth knowing and always worth uh, thinking about because it can it can help you see things from a few different angles, and uh, that's really what investing is all about. Uh, Well, hey, John, listen, I think that's going to do it for us this week, man. I really appreciate you sitting in and taking the time to join us.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime, Jason.
0: All right, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus, or you can drop us an email at IndustryFocus at Fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on, on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together. For the John Maxfield, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.